while Jesus, while he was here, but preparing his disciples because he was about to leave, as you can imagine, they became a little nervous, <laughs> frantic. Uh, and so he said to them, not, not to worry, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives you do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, nor let them be afraid. And Paul applies that to us in Philippians. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Brother, preach the word. Thank you, Pastor Glenn, and good morning to all of you. I'll try it. Good morning, and Merry Christmas. It's good to see you all this morning. You know, if you were to go back in time and overhear a car radio in late 1989, and I was alive then, in case you're wondering. I wasn't very old. I was barely alive. Uh, <laughs> there's a good chance that you would have heard the falling words being blared through the speakers. We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. No, we didn't start the fire. No, we didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Of course, that song is written by Billy Joel, and it reached number one on Billboard's top 100 that year. Billy wrote that song after a conversation with his friend Sean Lennon, a 21-year-old at the time, who was alarmed with just how crazy the world was in the 80s which that was a pretty crazy time, wasn't it? Just look at the wardrobe. Mr. Lennon, Mr. Lennon complained about the troubles of his age as though he knew nothing of the conflicts, wars, and struggles that preceded his era. And in reaction to his friend's ignorance of recent history, Joel was inspired to write a song with some lyrics that contained a list of 120 references to significant political cultural, scientific, and sporting events that spanned between 1948, the year before he was born, and 1989. Recently, the band Fall Out Boy has written their own version of that song with the same chorus but lists out events that span from 1989 to 2023. As you can imagine, things were pretty wild and have been ever since then over the last 30 plus years. I mean, 1989 was the year Taylor Swift was born. I share this song today to draw attention to the reality that Billy Joel, Fall Out Boy, and most of us in this room will acknowledge. M much of the world is on fire. It seems to be in a blaze. The lack of peace on earth, in our nation, in our state, even some of our homes, and sometimes in the church can be striking. We know that something is terribly off. We can feel the crackle in the air and the sparks seem to always be flying. Many people are on edge and we're unaware when we might step on some's, uh, someone's emotional landmines and which words might ignite our arrogant powder keg-like hearts. But there are two big issues with Mr. Joel's chorus that the Bible confronts for us, especially when we consider and celebrate Christmas each year. The first is that, newsflash, we did actually start the fire. <laughs> Mankind is not solely made up of a bunch of innocent victims when it comes to the lack of peace in our world. 
Because of Adam's sin and the way we mimic our father's first actions, we see that we are also co-culprits behind the blaze that continues to rage on. Our fighting against the hot interpersonal rivalries that started in the garden, they're typically akin to throwing water onto a grease fire. And if you've never done that before, it's not a good idea. We think, why do the flames just keep getting higher? I keep throwing water on it. But that's just the way it's always been, right? Well, no, actually, that's not true. Which brings me to the second error that's assumed by Mr. Billy. The fire hasn't always been burning since the world was turning. Contra Eastern religions that say the world came out of conflict between the gods and just popped into existence, or the evolutionary mindset that it's just been a constant fight and struggle and natural selection has gotten us to where we are, we have a different story in the Bible. And as Pastor John preached last week, we worship a triune God, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and this Trinitarian God has forever existed in a perfect, loving communion in himself. There is no rivalry in God. So where did all the rivalry and strife come from? It's what we like to call the fall. The Bible tells us about it in Genesis 1. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve began their lives in a state of shalom, true peace that was without quarreling, no fighting, no factions, no parties. But then they sinned, and the match was struck. Humanity lit the fire, and we've been adding fuel to it ever since that day. You see, the first sin ever committed by man has at its root the decision to create an unwarranted rivalry with God. The serpent deceived Eve by piquing her interest in the idea that God can't be trusted. He has something that man is supposed to have too. Satan told her in Genesis 3-5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So yeah, yeah, God, he's creator. He's worthy of worship. And he's the possessor of all wisdom. But Eve and Adam, who's there, just being a schmuck, not doing anything, says, the serpent, Adam says, he says to Adam and Eve, even though your creature is made in his image, you should also receive the same glory as him. You should know good and evil like him. He has something that you should have as well. Don't listen to him. He's keeping something from you that you should have that would make you like him. He's against your equality. And this is what I like to call the demonic wisdom of rivalry. And I get this idea from James 3, 14 through 16, where it says, But... If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. This is not actually wisdom, but it poses as good advice. It's demonic counsel that perpetuates that original lie sown by Satan to fabricate that unnecessary war between creator and creature, and then it flows out to husband and wife, this woman that you gave me, and then it flows to sons and daughters and brothers and sisters, and Cain kills 
Abel. Thus we see the first fire that spreads throughout the whole earth and over the course of history. And in a sense, this raging fire is one of the reasons behind the season called Advent that we celebrate. The blaze was burning, and all efforts to stop it seemed to fail, so mankind was waiting for a Savior to stamp it out. The earth was longing for peace until the God of peace came down from above and took on flesh, because the Son of God is peace incarnate. He has taken on a body, has taken on flesh. He descends from heaven so that his people might have true peace both now and forever. And as James continues, and and Glenn already mentioned, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Jesus was born in a manger during tumultuous times like ours. The flames were present in Bethlehem too. But this baby boy called Emmanuel was destined to be the ultimate peacemaker. By absorbing that wrath that we deserve for sin, Jesus becomes perfect peace. He becomes that perfect peace offering to reconcile us to our God. The infant Christ would grow up to be our great high priest and that once for all sacrifice. So brothers and sisters, may you be comforted and challenged this morning by this simple Christmas truth. It's that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross gives you peace that surpasses all understanding. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross gives you peace that surpasses all understanding. As it was read earlier, our text this morning Two of them, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In light of these two verses, I've organized our time this morning with three headings regarding peace. First, I'll explain some counterfeit peace that the world tries to give you. Secondly, I'll point out how utterly different true Christmas peace is. And then finally, I will charge you also to be a peacemaker yourself as you're a disciple of the great high priest. First, the counterfeit peace. The so-called peace that the world gives is fundamentally at odds with the peace that Christ offers you. The world's attempts to manufacture peace are at worst foolish and tyrannical, and at best, naive and misguided. Let me give you some examples. First, there's the idea of tolerance as peace. In Isaiah 48, 17 through 19, we read, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grain. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from me. One of the definitions for peace that the world tries to give us is that of tolerance, of making a compromise with sin. It seeks to build a fake friendship between two contradictory views of the universe and morality. Now, yes, believers are called to not be quarrelsome and to avoid schisms, 
where they do not exist, do not create them out of nothing. Paul does say in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But the secular call for an armistice often boils down to disobeying God's commands and redefining good as evil and evil as good in order to keep the peace. But you should never negotiate with tyrants, whether they're leaders or your spouse or your children. Oh, he just has a strong will. I can't, I can't reason with, no, no you, you need to deal with that little tyrant. <laughs> Conflict can certainly be a deed of the flesh, except when we're talking about dealing with sin, entering in, taking responsibility for it. When, whenever someone's endorsing the blaspheming of God and hating him, you, you don't, like, stay away from that conflict. Why? Because we're talking about a group of people that are worshiping different gods, different gods in the Bible. The idols they worship require radically different sacrifices to be appeased. And the reality is that all mankind is made up of priests. Starting with Adam, we're all priestly by nature. The Garden of Eden the way that it's described, it, it actually, it sounds much like a temple. And Adam was given the duty to work and to keep it. And all priests minister by making offerings to their God with their bodies, with their work, with all that they are. And there is a pantheon of enemy gods that love to tempt and entice you to hate God and his people and build alliances with those who do. The powerful idol behind the false piece of tolerance is the God of respectability at all costs. Being respectable is a good thing. But when you worship it, it can become a tyrant. This is what is worshipped by the cult of cool, its respectability. As James 4, 4 reminds us, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This doesn't mean you're allowed to be a jerk. You're called to love your neighbor, but you cannot idolize your neighbor in what they think of you or what you think they might be thinking of you. If you seek to be a people pleaser and construct coalitions with the worldly, don't be surprised when they double-cross you in the future. You will then say, I thought we were friends. But their ideas have devastating consequences. They'll take advantage of you and enslave you and your family. You'll find yourself in the same position as the nation of Edom in Obadiah 1.7. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Thus, we see here that this is the first fake shalom that's marked by acceptance and promotion of sin no matter how destructive it is. Just let them do what they want. It's not any of your business. Which brings me to another faux notion of peace. It's avoidance as peace. Just avoiding the situation. Perhaps you think it is a problem that people keep starting fires and keep sinning and feeding those fires with their rebellious actions. You agree with God that there's actually a fire in the attic and it's best to stop you know, hoarding flammable things up there. However, you regularly say, you know, well, that, that's, not, 
that's not my problem. Someone else really ought to do something about that smoke up there. And well, yes, there are things far away that we see that are burning, but there are things right in front of us in our own spheres, in our homes, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplaces, in our communities, that we, we actually have some responsibility for. The idea of avoidance of peace is more or less you act like that famous dog in that this is fine meme. Do you know what I'm talking about? He's wearing a hat and he's just drinking coffee. All the while he sits in a room that's completely on fire. And you just, you know, as long as, long as I've got my conveniences and my prosperity, you know, everything's good, right? It's not true. This is what Hezekiah did when he was told that Things are going to go bad for your family because of what you've done. He's like, oh, well, that's fine. As long as things are good for me right now, whatever, kids will deal with it. That's not what we are called to. That's not what, avoid, that's not what peace is. This fire will not just stop. It will consume your entire house. And so instead of seeking peace, you offer up inaction and a lack of courage to the God of comfort. Because becoming a part-time firefighter seems like an uncomfortable and inconvenient use of your time. Is that true, partners? Is that, is that, <laughs> it's a hard job, isn't it? But passivity as a strategy doesn't work either. To simply avoid conflict does not promote peace. Just because you say things are fine does not mean they are. As Jeremiah once said, For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophets to priests, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. The prophets, priests, and general population of Judah in Jeremiah's day, they tried to perform what was kind of like a Jedi mind trick regarding peace. They just kind of like move their hands out in front of them, and they're like, Peace, peace. You are at peace. Everything's fine. But, <laughs> but there wasn't the response of like, Yes, it's fine. no. It didn't heal. It didn't do anything. It didn't, it didn't squelch the flames. God's people were not at peace because their leaders were ignoring idolatry and neglecting the Lord's warning of impending punishment. We cannot avoid the fire and act like it does not exist. We really need someone to extinguish it. Before I share who that might be, and I'm sure you already know the Sunday school answer, let me share one last counterfeit that routinely adds kindling to the blaze. It's uniformity as peace uniformity. Another false gospel of peace we hear today is taught by the cult of conformity. Yes, we want to be conformed to the image of Christ, but we don't all look the same. We don't all have the same abilities, right? The cult of conformity repeats the mantra, equality at all costs. Any natural differences between the callings and offices of male and female, of husband and wife, of father, mother, and child, of elected officials and citizens, of pastors in their congregation are seen as arbitrary and they're assumed to be rivalries. And the irony is that folks that often like preach this, they cloak their presentations being what, you know, it's equity and we're being courageous and promoting diversity and need representation. And yet what they're really preaching, guys, and you have to see this because I know your heart wants it, it's preaching that it's okay to be envious, to be jealous, and to be selfishly ambitious. And that's a virtue. And the culture's telling you it's a virtue. They have it, 
you should have it. This world is not abundant. There's not a lot to go around. It's a zero-sum game. If they have something, you don't have it. But our God creates out of nothing. He has made this amazing, superabundant world. Like the 1997 Gatorade commercial with Michael Jordan and Mia Hamm, we unnecessarily compete against one another and sing, anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. That's not what we're called to. Despising God's differences that he's given us ignores the beauty and design of the cosmos. The Lord has made people with certain strengths and abilities and responsibilities, and others do not have them. Some cannot have them. And if they try to get them, they go against the grain of the universe, and they get splinters. And this is a good and glorious thing. We celebrate this thing. As G.K. Chesterton once wrote, If I set the sun beside the moon, and if I set the lamb beside the sea, and if I set the flower beside the fruit, and if I set the town beside the country, and if I set the man beside the woman, I suppose some fool will talk about one being better. The way that this can often play out in the church is to allow our idolatry for particular personalities, age, education, and vocational backgrounds to build resentment toward others who aren't like us. And we have to fight against that. And it happens in subtle ways. Introvert versus extrovert. Greg's going to hug all of y'all. You just have to get over it, okay? It's going to have to happen. But it's okay if different people aren't huggy, you know? They can still extend the right hand of fellowship. We're different. I mean, this happens in marriages, right? Introverts and extroverts get married. Somehow or another it works. Millennial, boomer, Gen Z, Gen X. We're called to honor our father and mother. So teenagers, when you spitefully clap back to your parents and act like, you don't know anything. I know you got gray hair, but you haven't gotten any wisdom over those years. No. That's a rivalry that God did not create. Okay, boomer is not an okay sentiment. Likewise, my elderly brothers and sisters, the Bible calls you to not despise youth. You can't just look and say, a bunch of dumb kids don't know what's going on. A bunch of ignorance I see on Facebook all the time. I mean, there's a lot of it. I mean, I'm, I'm a millennial. I help create some of it. I was one of the first Facebookers. But hey, you know what you could do? Step in and speak to the ignorance. Take us by your side. We've got PhDs and college degrees, and we've got people who did their master work by cutting their hands up and getting bloodied and getting on their knees and, and maybe having to get some workers' comp. Different schools, but still wisdom. White collar versus blue collar. I just like to look at that as more like air warfare and ground warfare. We need people speaking in these higher ranks, and we need people on the ground doing the dirty work in the house. We don't want uniformity. We want this diversity that God gives us. We all wear the same jersey, but we play different positions. We must stiff-arm the world's cries that everyone needs to be the quarterback. Jesus came to give us peace, not as the world gives. The counterfeit peace this world offers us still leaves us troubled 
and distressed because it demands that we remain burning in our sinful desires. It tells us we should fear the fleshly whims of those around us and complains that justice cannot happen until everybody is the same and has the same on earth. But the peace of God truly does surpass our understanding and confronts our assumptions and idols, which brings me to the good news of peace that came down from heaven, which we remember at Christmas, the Christmas peace. Shalom does not mean the absence of conflict, but includes the ideas of wholeness, completeness, soundness, and well-being. Biblical peace does not mean giving people what they want, even if it means it will destroy them. As Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert explain, at its most robust, the word peace points to a situation in which God's authority and rule are absolute, where his creations, including human beings, exist in right relationships with him and with each other, and where there is no separation between God and man because of sin. The peace of God both transcends and comes down and transforms the world. It preserves hearts and minds. It casts away fears because God gives it to us through the sacrifice of his Son on the cross. Colossians 1, 19-20 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The baby Jesus was born to die. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor of God and favor of man so that he would be the perfect peace offering on Calvary for you and me. This suffering servant, while he's on the tree, says, Father, forgive them for they know what they are doing. And the Father hears the prayer and answers it for you. The crucifixion brought real peace on earth. And it isn't astounding that this idea that blood had to be shed to deal with our hostility. This is what the Old Testament taught God's people. Leviticus 3, 1 through 2, says, If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. It's not remarkable that blood was needed. What is remarkable about the gospel is that the atonement of Christ, after that, there were no other sacrifices needed because this time you had a totally righteous man who was offered up. Not some livestock, not a lamb, not a bird, not a goat. And you see, when the angel came and proclaimed the good news to those shepherds at night that a newborn baby was wrapped in swaddling clothes, they would have realized what was about to happen. Because our rugged, blue-collared brothers would have heard that and remembered what happens routinely at the temple. The lambs that were without blemish when they were born, they would set them aside and wrap them in swaddling clothes, saying, this one is the one that's going to be used for the sacrifice. But this time, it was a human child with no defects. The boy was perfect because he was the Messiah. And in the fullness of time, that young boy grew up and was led to the slaughter at Golgotha. And at that time, the sacrificial system became obsolete. It was finished for you, for me, for our children, for those who are far off, who believe it was finished. No one else needs to become a scapegoat in society. 
No one else needs to shed their blood in order to relieve the heat of, of sin. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, becomes that once-for-all sacrifice for his church, and the powerful work of that peacemaker squelches out even the most fierce fires that have been raging in the souls of men and women. Jesus did not compromise with sin in order to gain popularity and prestige. He did not avoid the great plight of mankind in its corruption and death. He actually came down and got on our level. He came down and embraced the ultimate discomfort so that you can be reconciled back to the Father. And Christ did not come to make a bunch of clones who look all the same. Instead, our Lord sanctifies a diverse, gifted body of believers who enjoy fellowship with one another, not rivalry, not strife, not backbiting and slander, but collectively offer up their lives in thanksgiving to a holy God. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This morning, God asks you, is your world on fire? Is your heart burning with anxiety and fear regarding all of your imperfections and your failures? Have you burned bridges that once sustained the closest relationships in your life? With your wife, with your husband, your son or your daughter, your mother or your father, a once close friend, even somebody in this church. Come to Jesus, confess your sins and trust in him to extinguish all the fiery darts that the enemy has hurled into your life and the wildfires that have gotten out of control that are the result of your acts of arson. He is able to miraculously turn your ashes to beauty. The one who created the Garden of Eden in Shalom is capable of making peace reign supreme in your heart. By faith, approach his temple. Lay down all your lighters, all your flamethrowers, all your Molotov cocktails, and receive Christ the Lord, the gift of God's peace. He'll give you his spirit. He'll change your life. He'll enable you to embrace a whole new mission, not a fire starter, but that of reconciliation. Because God delights in turning former arsonists into firefighters. He loves to change peace fakers and peace breakers into peace makers. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is our Christmas peace. And it should change you. And it does. So, to all of you, my brothers and sisters, my fellow peacemakers, here's a charge to you. You see, one of the greatest dangers to the church is the belief that Christianity must be reduced down to simply what is spiritual and in your heart. It certainly is spiritual. But the message of Christmas to us is that peace is incarnate that the God of peace took on flesh. It flowed out through fingertips. Feet hit the ground. The peace that he brings is more than just an abstract pie-in-the-sky sentimentality disconnected from your daily life. Yes, Jesus is coming back again, and he will totally eradicate sin and death at his second coming, but it is a mistake to believe that you cannot experience any of this peace of God now 
and practice it today. It's a lie. It really is possible. And if you think it's impossible, God likes to do the impossible. So let's just put that in there. Romans 5.1 reminds us, as it was read earlier, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And likewise, Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Christians are little Christ. That's what that means, little Christ. And Jesus' beatitude here is an invitation to you and me to partake in the blessing of his peacemaking work. Because sons should want to be like their father. They want to emulate what he's doing. So how do you promote and even make peace so that you too are called a son of God? The first thing is stop being so combustible. Stop being so combustible. Are you like one of those cars that are driving down the road and you get behind them and you see the little like sign and you're like, ooh, I'm going to stay a little ways away from them. Something happens. You're going to be a big explosion here. <laughs> this is... Um, they're not supposed to go downtown, right? And they're not allowed to do that. Often Christians can still be triggered and offended by simple words or perceived tone. As opposed to having thick skin and being able to bear significant hardship or discomfort, believers sometimes just blow their tops over petty things. Your defenses need not be paper thin and super flammable when a little heat comes your way. In 2 Corinthians 12:10, Paul says, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I know, I know this is a lot easier said than done. It is. Especially in a couple weeks when you're forced to go to that family get-together, and that family member who's always there, it always gets on your nerves. No, my, my family, no. no, no that's, geez. My mom always watches these. Not talking about anybody there. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, see, the difficulty of making peace is multiplied when your emotions aren't saturated with peace and contentment in God. When the living water of God's promises aren't nourishing your soul, it's easier to catch fire and explode. Likewise, you must recognize that sometimes maybe you take a good desire and you elevate it to a sinful de demand. Perhaps you have an unrealistic expectation that just increases your volatility. If either of these things are true for you, just regularly pray for God's help to lay down the idols of your emotions and your expectations. Make sure you stay well watered and soak up the truth of God's peace in his word. It's important. You have to be in his word to be well watered. You could memorize a verse like John 16, 33 that says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And if you do blow up, which happens sometimes, then be quick to repent. Make haste to ask for forgiveness and take responsibility for however far your blast radius has traveled. Stop being so combustible. 
The second is to put on the right shoes. Ephesians 6.15 says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This verse here is found in the passage on the armor of God. If the church is at war against the unpeaceful fires of hell, she's going to need some proper footwear to fight it. Firefighters don't just wear sneakers, right? So no, a peacemaker's shoes are not characterized by style and comfort at all costs. These aren't a pair of your, your really slick, off-white Nikes or your Birkenstocks, Crocs, or Hey Dudes, as comfortable as they are. They need to provide real stability and support in the midst of a fierce battle. As commentator Frank Thielman explains, in this instance, the gospel of peace is not a message to be proclaimed, but paradoxically, military equipment used in a raging battle. The expression probably means, then, that the gospel whose content is peace is the source of the metaphorical soldier's readiness. At the center of the gospel stands the death of Christ on the cross, the peace that this death brings between rebellious humanity and its creator, and the peace that it brings to various competing factions within humanity itself. Your peace with God through Christ gives you the proper soul and support to stand up and do the work of the ministry of reconciliation, no matter how tough the train is. You can't offer peace to others unless you are grounded in the peace yourself. That's what makes you ready to do this work. Making peace is one of the good works that God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in as God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So lastly, we have stop being so combustible, put on the right shoes, and then join the pursuit and take up your cross. We see in Psalm 34, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Likewise in Romans it says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing. Peace is available to all those who pursue it and truly desire it. But the peace of God is not meant to be hoarded. It's meant to be shared with others. Jesus Christ did not keep peace to himself, but shared it with the world by dying. And so we come once again to the greatest irony about Christian peace and your call to be a peacemaker. It requires a crucified life. Jesus Christ did not complain, man, I wish I could get some peace and quiet around here. But instead, he was crucified to make peace. And by faith, you must die to yourself as well. Offer up yourself to God as a living sacrifice and trust that he truly does raise the dead to make peace with others. Matthew 16, 24, this famous passage, and Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When your child disobeys and talks back to you, step into the fray. Deal with the discomfort of knowing that that relationship isn't good right now, and you need to attend to it. Bring the gospel of peace. Seek reconciliation. When you have that rift between your husband or wife, you said that snarky word, you re- and you're the one responsible. Let's just start with that. Planks in your eye, all right? And the heat's rising. 
seek to extinguish it. Come to it with peace. Make, die to yourself and make the effort to see something resolve. We can't just sit back and let the fires burn. When you embrace the crucified life of a peacemaker, that's when you are rightly called a son of the God of peace. The fire that may be raging in your spouse, one of your children, your boss at work, and a strange sibling may be quite the inferno. And you may not see the fire grow any weaker with your initial efforts of reconciliation. But take heart, because the same baby that Mary bore in Bethlehem is able to make rain pour down from the sky and douse the most out-of-control forest fire. In late October this year, due to dry conditions in my hometown, a wildfire broke out. I'm from a little farm town called Madison, Virginia. It sits adjacent to the Shenandoah National Park. And initially, it just had burned up 20 acres, but the steep and rocky terrain made it difficult to fight. A day later, the fire had grown to cover 120 acres. And then the Department of Forestry and the Virginia National Guard and at least 150 additional out-of-state firefighters were called to come in and help contain the fire. Black Hawk helicopters were getting water out of ponds and lakes, what was left of them, and, and throwing them on the fire. And it wasn't like a massive one that happens out in California regularly, but it did. It kept growing from 425 acres to 1,200 to 2,400. And it wasn't until Friday, November 10th, that any real progress was made in putting out what had now burned 3,700 acres, including around 675 acres of parkland. So what happened that day? It rained. It rained. The clouds rolled overhead and the sky opened up. My mom told me on the phone, what a difference a quarter inch of rain makes. You see, our peacemaking efforts in this depraved world can often feel like fighting a forest fire. We try to carve out containment lines, but the embers jump them. We call in reinforcements to broker peace, but the stubborn flames keep rising. We keep pouring buckets of water from God's word onto the blaze and stamping out sparks with our shoes. But unless the Lord rains down his mercy and his spirit moves using those things in those relationships and douses them with his peace, things won't completely be put out. This doesn't mean that you're faithful peacemaking efforts are worthless. If we tolerated and avoided the heat, the destruction could grow to tens of thousands of acres or more. But we desperately need the heavens to open up. And at Christmas time, that's exactly what we remember, is that God did that very thing by sending his son, the Prince of Peace, God with us to make peace by the blood of his cross. And this is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every single week. Because on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. <clears throat> and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The new covenant he talks about 
is our Lord's solemn bond of peace, sovereignly administered with so many blessings that he ratified forever with his blood. And in communion, we look back at the cross where peace was purchased for us. We delight now in the peace that we presently possess in Jesus, and we look forward to the ultimate shalom that Christ will bring when he comes again. I now invite all believers of the Lord Jesus Christ to come forward and partake in the gift of God's table, where his peace is always served and never runs out.